Good morning. I'm Brian Humphreys, and uh, many of you know me here, but perhaps some of you don't. I've been attending Cornerstone for about four years now, and uh, previously uh, was a pastor, and uh, one of the last places we were at uh, was in mid-Michigan, Howard City, Michigan, and pastored there for seven years and uh, wife Sharon and son Nicholas is uh, sitting about uh, six or seven rows back on my right, and uh, um, Nicholas is a sophomore at uh, Ohio State and a married daughter that's in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and um, Sharon and I have been um, married for 27 years, uh, coming up on on 28, believe it or not, and uh, coming up this May, it's been a joy to share ministry together. Presently, I'm a chaplain at Mount Carmel East Hospital, and it's a privilege to share the Word with you. You might be saying, ooh, somebody was a pastor in Michigan coming and speaking this morning. I was actually grew up uh, around Batasco, Ohio, and uh, uh, born out of uh, the year of our Lord, 1968, uh, hospital that doesn't exist anymore, but in another form, Doctors Hospital North, I think it's like an extended care um, physical rehabilitation facility on Dennis Avenue, and was born on Mother's Day back in May of 1968, and um, my dad wasn't going to get my mother a Mother's Day gift, and he he changed his mind very quickly after I was born on that day, and it was on a Sunday, and nothing open except a drugstore, so uh, my mom got set there, but um, really being a pastor in Michigan and being a Buckeye fan, most of the time during those seven years, I was uh, smiling, and I didn't believe in, you know, wearing the garb of your team as preaching, didn't have Buckeye ties on or a, a scarlet blazer, but all I was just ready. I wouldn't speak of it very much, but if somebody wanted to razz me a little bit about being a Buckeye fan and say, well, what happened with App State? That was their first year being a uh, (laughs) pastor there, and it was just glorious, I do have to say. Well, before I abuse the pulpit here, I think we need to dig into God's Word this morning. We're going to continue on through uh, Colossians 3, and if you'd stand together, The passage that we have listed is Colossians uh, 3, 18 through 21. I'm going to back up to verse 17 because I think it sets everything very well. And we'll begin Colossians 3, 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. May the Lord add his richest blessing to this reading of his word. Shall we pray? An eternal God, our Father, we would ask that what comes through our ears this morning as we hear your voice through your word, may it be your voice 
May it go through our ears, and may it reach into our hearts. This we would ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I chose to include verse 17 in Colossians chapter 3 as a very important bridge that we see this verse, whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to God the Father through Him, doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. I heard this verse, you know, used many times of, as, as athletic pursuits, and I fell into this trap myself that uh, I, you know, Lord, I have this race. I want to have a good time, my best time ever. I would like to, you know, solidify my standing in varsity or move up towards varsity, and I'm doing it all for you. And so, but the implied answer to that kind of prayer and that kind of deal-making with the Lord, bringing this verse up, well, Lord, I do it for you. What I wanted was a good time. I wanted to perform well running the race that day. Ed Uzinski, he wrote an article for Desiring God entitled, Does God Care Who Wins? And it was posted to Desiring God just before the 2015 Super Bowl. Let me quote a few things from that article. Ed wrote, huge games usually and annually provoke the question, does God care who wins the game? Hovering over this discussion is a predominant but twisted American value long absorbed into our sports culture itself. Winning is everything, and losing is for losers. Winning is the ultimate worldly good in the sports culture. Therefore, since God does good to those who do good, the team reflecting the most goodness should win, or so the thinking generally goes. So, many might cringe at that unsophisticated nature of that argument, but uh, Ed would go on to write from a Pew Religion Research Institute article that reports that 48% of Americans believe athletes of faith are rewarded with good health and success. And the number jumps above 60% for professing Protestant Americans, regardless of racial background. We assume that God will bless the righteous with scoreboard victories and leave the less righteous sorting through their own limitations, both spiritually and physically. I don't know how many times I had seen this verse used as kind of like a, you know, something you sprinkle on, whatever pursuit it was. For me, I abused it athletically, wanting a good result. For others, it could be success in life. If I just do it for the Lord or say I'm doing it for the Lord, Lord, you have to bless me. Actually, as you look through the passage itself, it, it explains what you know, the doing, what is the whatever, it explains exactly what those whatever things are. And not that it can't be applied ultimately to some of those other things that we would like success in, but it's very simple how it's explained. What is whatever for the Lord? Yeah. God most certainly cares who wins, and he, but it's not necessarily to the most godly. He has his own purposes in that. 
but doing whatever for the Lord. It means, in verse 5, Colossians 3, put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. As you put those things of the old life to death, that is doing it for the Lord. Not walking in the way you once walked, verse 7, is doing it for the Lord. Putting on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. That is doing it for the Lord. Verse 13, bearing with one another, that is doing it for the Lord. So other things, if you want to know what, what's the whatever I should be doing, it's those hard things. Yeah, I put off the old life, putting away gossip, that's doing something for the Lord. That's what's expected. And then with this bridge in verse 17, whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, it goes specifically next in verse 18 into roles that we may have in life. You have wives mentioned, verse 18, husbands, verse 19, children, in verse 20, you have fathers, we have parents mentioned, verse 21. There'll be a message next week that Tony picks up on, verse 22, you have slaves, and eventually masters going right to the first verse of chapter 4. You have all these roles, and, and those roles being mentioned, well, how do I actually do this? How do I… It, you know, put some meat on the bones. How am I actually supposed to do whatever for the Lord? The apostle tells us what we're supposed to do. If you want to do whatever for the Lord, if you're a wife, be a good wife for the Lord. If you're a husband, be a good husband as described here for the Lord. If you're a child, Oh, you're, obey your parents and everything. And it's for the Lord. This pleases the Lord. Fathers, by extension, parents, do not provoke your, your children. This pleases the Lord. You do that for the Lord. Ultimately, any area of life, it's for the Lord. Yes, for many years, we would have looked at uh, verse 17 as some sort of tack-on and hoping it was some sort of rabbit's foot that I would do better on my cross-country team in high school and college. But as I looked over the chapter, very obvious that God had some other things in mind that we should be doing. Right out of the gate in our roles, there's some things that strike against the sensibilities of our culture. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. You know, what do you mean by this? What are you talking about here, this word submit? And the first area that we see that we live for the Lord is this. Live for the Lord in marriage. There's something very practical about this. God wants us to live for Him right where we're planted. Whatever station in life that He's placed us. Bloom right where you're planted. 
live for the Lord in marriage, but this strikes against the sensibilities of our culture. And this thought of living for the Lord in marriage, there are many who don't even believe in it anymore. I found uh, another Pew study this more kind of on the social trends in from a Pew research from a couple years ago and read from some of their findings here. But this was the tracking of American millennials, and those would be basically those born from roughly uh, 1981 to 1996. That would be the millennial generation, make reference to the silent generation, and those would have been the ones born before the boomers, so roughly 1946, 1945, uh, till born during the Great Depression. But here's what uh, Pew found about the how marriage is going with uh, millennials. Pew study wrote, six in ten millennials, or 57 percent, have never been married, reflecting the broader societal shifts towards marriage in later life. In 1965, the typical American woman first married at age 21, and the typical man wed at 23. By 2017, those figures climbed to 27 for women and 29 and a half for men. When members of the silent generation were the same age as millennials are now, just 17% had never been married. Still about two-thirds of never married millennials, 65%, say they would like to get married someday. When asked the reasons they have not gotten married, 29% say they are not financially prepared while 26% say they have not found someone who has the qualities they're looking for. An additional 26% say they are too young and not ready to settle down. Now, hear me out, hear me out very clearly here. This passage is not saying that it's a command to get married. There's things that uh, Paul even commends out of himself that he was able to remain single throughout all of his life and you know, the opportunities for the Lord. This is not a command to get married or the must get married, but we do see here that marriage is good. And it is a covenant between a man and a woman that ordering of relationship that goes back to the garden itself. Marriage is good, and it is to be honored. Hebrews 13.5 says exactly that. Let marriage be honored among all, and the marriage bed undefiled. There's realities it was good. It was in innocence that God instituted this, and He created the woman and gave, gave her to the man. But in this fallen world, in ordering relationships, that God has instituted this as good, and it's to be honored. In expressions of relationship that go outside of, sexually, beyond the bounds of marriage, are excluded. Hebrews 13, that says God will judge the adulterer and the fornicator. goes on to say that. You can see very obviously from this, it's not a command to go, go get married, 
but from the weight of Scripture being brought in to bear on this passage, marriage is good. Amen? Yeah, I won't say anything. <laughs> good. You did real good, Mike. I will say something. <laughs> Wives, submit to your husbands in the Lord. There's sensibilities of our culture. Many react against this. Well, we're, it, if there is marriage, it's two equals coming together. And I believe that there's equality in standing. But there, what Paul is speaking to is roles. Wives submitting to their husbands does cut against the sensibility of our culture. The word submit means to fall in place and sometimes was used in military terms. And how do you do this? That sometimes not the best decisions are made by the husband. Maybe I don't agree. It's for the Lord. You do it for the Lord. Now, something to be said here. I've seen this passage in Ephesians 5. There's another passage that is very similar to this, more expansive than the Colossians passage. I have seen professing Christian men abuse this passage and others for their own selfish ends. We don't do special music here at Cornerstone, but anybody have a church background where they had special music? Yeah, I don't know what the difference between other church music and special music is, but I think they mean the solo or the choir, or that's the special music, but you have know, been in some churches where they had special music. One of the previous churches, couple having some problems, deep problems in their marriage and husband went to the church board, you got to make my wife submit. There's nothing here that says, you make your wife submit. Is this in the passage? It's willingly. But wife was a gifted singer, one time doing special music, glad I didn't see it, turned his back on his wife as she sang. What a horrible, horrible abuse of Scripture. Notice it's as, as fitting in the Lord. There's some things that professing Christian husbands have wanted of their lives, of their wives, and it's not of the Lord. It's as fitting as unto the Lord. Second verse that we see, verse 19, husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. The word for love is agape. It's that self-giving love. There's kind of a temptation when looking at passages, you know, why is this set up the way it is? Uh, well, it just must have been so rank and immoral in the Roman world that Paul spoke to. And, you know, reading up on this, I saw some evidence. There's some things in corners of society, very immoral, but there was corners of society that adultery, uh, treating your wife badly, it was frowned upon in corners of Roman society. 
some of the things that uh, adultery being very common in some areas of Roman life was among the upper classes, and that the wife was expected to take care of the household, and it was almost a given that if you're a male of standing, and as you grow older, you might have a concubine or a mistress on the side. So there was, there was rank immorality, but maybe not that much different than what we find today. It's here, but just to kind of say, you know, because of immorality, that we'll have this guide everything that we, this is why Paul writes the way he does. I think it's higher than that. This love is agape. It's the same love that Christ showed towards his people. In the parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 5 through 6, it says that Christ gave himself for the church, and that's how Christ's love was for us, and that's how your love, husbands, is to be for your wives. These are very brief verses. It's filling in a lot of things, like date night and all the rest. It does not describe exactly what you're supposed to do in order that those things are prescribed. But what we see here, it's a self-giving love that is self-sacrificing. One of the things that you wouldn't see immorality at all corners of Roman society, but one of the things about marriage was that it was largely transactional. It's what the wife brought into the relationship. They had dowries in Roman society. You know, what kind of money was she going to bring for her own support from the father as they worked out the terms of the agreement, of the agreement to get married? Marriage, biblically, is a covenant. I just want to add in another thing. You know, live, for, live your marriage for the Lord. Live in marriage for the Lord. Back to, you know, how these passages can be abused. Sometimes I wonder that we see what we want to in some of these passages, and as a man looks at, you know, wives, submit to your husbands. Hey, hey, did you hear what the preacher said there? Uh, you need to listen to that. And we, we have different font sizes for the words that we have, and maybe husbands see, you know, when they see the word submit, they see it in 72-point font. Did you see that? Yeah, it's submit. It says submit. Men of this church, those who are married and aspiring to marriage someday, you know what needs to be in 72-point font and even bigger? Husbands, love your wives. That needs to be. That's the only thing you can control. That should be in bright lights. That should be shining out at you. Do not be harsh with them. It's a, kind of in the passive, but it's, it's something that builds up kind of an anger or resentment inside. It just kind of grows. And the one who's responsible for that, I hear all the time, been in the working world, and those that are disappointed with their marriages, with their wives, and talking about different things. Well, she did that. She did this other thing. That 
being harsh with them, it's something that the husband's responsible for. You're the one that controls that. You've got to respond to the circumstances. I will never forget uh, at a pastor's conference a number of years ago you know, that, that there's challenges in marriage. You don't know what you're going to face, you know, health problems, uh, what could be ahead. And uh, Rico Tice, he, he developed a Christianity Explored evangelistic series, but talking about a funeral that he did with a husband that had uh, lived and, you know, disturbed his wife for years and years, and she had a deep mental illness, did it for years and years and years. And, uh, and Rico said he remembered somebody coming up to the husband after the funeral and saying, boy, it just must have been very, very hard. And the husband said, but I took vows. I took vows. What's in large font here? Husbands, love your wives. Don't be harsh with them. A couple of other areas to go to, but can, continues to move on in the home. Verse 20, live for the Lord as children, number two. So, live for the Lord in your marriage, live for the Lord as children. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. I just want to step back from this just a little bit. You, you have this book, Book to the Colossians, uh, Church at Colossae. This was a church that most of the people never met Paul personally in their lives, and here they're, they, you know, I just got a letter, I just got a letter. They get a letter from Paul. That's how deep he, he knew some of the co-workers that eventually built up this church, but that was the connection. It was just through those co-workers. He never met the vast majority of these people face to face. When this letter came, do you think there would have been interest? The apostle is writing to us. And it would have been read in the assembly whenever they assembled. Imagine that first Lord's Day, getting everybody together, and they had a letter from the Apostle Paul. He wrote to them. Notice, there's the expectation that there be children in the assembly. Children were there. And that children can follow the Lord. I'm not taking a strike against age-graded ministry or for family-integrated ministry, some of those battles that take place. So, you know, what time is appropriate to keep on going with junior church and what the cutoff age should be and all the rest. But there's the expectation that children could sit in the assembly and they could listen to God's Word. Live for the Lord as children. Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. The Ephesians passage goes, it's just very blunt and right to the point. For this is right. Obey your parents, for this is right. And it goes on to say, it's the first command, children obey your parents with a promise that it may go well with you. Going back to those 
Deuteronomy teachings, that it will go well with you. It doesn't mean that you're going to necessarily and guaranteed to live 80 or 90 years, but it's more likely that it's going to be a good life. And no, it isn't true, as Billy Joel saying, that only the good die young. No, generally speaking, it's going to go better for you when you obey your parents. Again, some could chafe against this a, a bit because it says in everything. Well, what about if parent does this or that? And trying to find those exceptions, sometimes it's to drive a Mack truck through. Yeah, there is some heartbreaking things with discipline that is harsh and abusive and all the rest. But generally speaking, you need to be obeying your parents. It will go well with you. How do you do everything for the Lord? Uh, well, I'd just like this verse to be along when I want to do well on this test or I want to do well in this athletic event. No, it's the things that you might find hard to do, that obeying your parents. I really don't want to obey them in that. But this pleases the Lord. He's speaking to practically everybody. Number three, live for the Lord as parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Yeah, there is an understanding that uh, fathers, parents, mothers, and fathers will have a strong disciplinary and guiding role in their children's lives, but don't do it in such a way that they become discouraged, that they do not become angry. In the love that the apostle writes with as he shares his scriptures and goes through all the ways that you can serve the Lord, The apostle wants fathers that there could be, in the culture, there's times that there could be harshness, and you've seen the harshness. Lovingly lead your children. That children, it's not a transactional thing. That was one of the things that struck me. It's not that I found more immorality in the Roman world than we have in our own place and time, but so many of the things with families was transactional. Well, you get a wife because that will help with running the household. She'll bring a dowry with her. And then they had things that were heavy-handed from Rome sometimes when the birth rates dropped down that they would put incentives or even penalties. You got to have children because we got to keep things going here as an empire. It was transactional. Is that what children are about in the in God's economy? Yeah, some are putting off marriage today, and I don't know that I'm ready for marriage. I don't know that I'm ready for kids. What is over all this is children are a blessing. They are a heritage from the Lord, as Psalm 127 says. They're a blessing. Live as parents for the Lord. Apply the instruction, the guidance, the discipline in such a way that they don't become discouraged. 
These are actually very crisp uh, passages here. It's much more compact than what we have in Ephesians 5 and 6, uh, describing what's here. Go, we went through them rather quickly this morning. There's one more role that is described for us. There are two more, excuse me. Slaves and masters through the end of the chapter. Slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. And then it goes on to tell you know, what masters should be doing. Thank God that there isn't slavery today, but this has obvious application to employment. Whether you're under somebody at work or you're over somebody leading them, whether as the employer or one of the managers, to do what the employer wants you to do, what does the apostle say that you need to do with it? Do it for the Lord. Wives, there is challenges, there is joys with your role. How do you thrive in the challenges? Do it for the Lord. Husbands, there are joys and there are challenges in marriage. How do you love your wife as Christ loved the church? You do it for the Lord. Children, there's joys in obeying. Yes, there really is. But you know your parents' inconsistencies. You can talk about the loopholes. I don't know that I really have to do that. Is Paul saying I need to obey my parents? Yes, he really is. There's joys. You can see your parents' inconsistencies time to time. How can you do it? Remember who it's for. Parents, there are joys, lots of joys. There are lots of things. Doing a parenting class right now, it's just all the different stages with raising children. You just don't, you think you got it down, and then your children change, and now on to the next uh, phase. There's joys, and there's lots of challenges. How do we keep on doing it? Not just, well, I, I don't want children that run amok, but arrows and directed towards as a heritage in the Lord, that they're blessings from the Lord and they're going to live for the Lord someday with God's help. How do you keep on doing it? It's for the Lord. And even into the work world, it's for the Lord. We're going to be partaking of communion in a little bit, but much like, you know, athlete religion, we can say things, just say the right phrases, you know, whatever you do in word and deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him, and it's just, rather than relationship, it's just kind of religious-sounding language that you sprinkle on top. In order to do something for the Lord, you need to have a relationship with the Lord. Would you think most pastors' wives know the Lord? Well, one of the, uh, read this many years ago, uh, Beth and Lloyd-Jones, a wife of Martin Lloyd-Jones, was considered uh, maybe the best uh, English you know, 
United Kingdom preacher of the 20th century, and, uh, and he, she was describing the time that uh, husband preaching and some people coming to know the Lord in the church, the little Methodist church that they were with in Wales. And she wrote about this in those early years at Abigon. I rejoice to see men and women converted, drunkards, evil livers, all manners and types of backgrounds, all different ages. I rejoice to see them, and I envied them, and sometimes I wished when I saw their radiant faces and changed lives that I'd been a drunkard or worse, so that I might be converted. I never imagined that I needed to be converted. I'd always been a Christian, uh, and how could I get any more than I already was already. In those first two years, God graciously used Martin's morning sermons to open my eyes and show me myself and my needs. I came to know my sins forgiven and the peace of God in my heart. To do anything for the Lord, you have to know the Lord. It's one of the things that worries me about uplifting athlete religion. Sometimes the, the game is kind of given away. I'd like to thank the man above for helping me and give me these talents to do this. And, you know, like, is there any relationship? Some do seem to have relationship. And then Steph Curry, no matter... Uh, you know, what he does with his uh, mouthpiece that annoys me to no end. Uh, he seems to be trying to live his life for the Lord, but the, that you just sprinkle a Bible verse on it and, you know, grant me success and, yeah, we, we must get everything from God anyway. God's got to be behind it if we're doing anything for God. Uh, you know, if I'm successful, I got to give God thanks in some ways, but it's possible to talk like that and not be doing it for the Lord. Notice. These are some of the most joyous relationships in life, but they have some of the hardest things to do in order to truly do those things for the Lord. You can't do these things unless you know God personally through Christ, that you've experienced peace with God. So, as we partake this morning, if you're unsure of that, no harm in letting the elements, the bread and the cup, pass by. Seek me out. Seek someone out. We would be happy to share more about how you can know Christ as your one and only, the one who saves you from your sins, the one who died on the cross for you, and how you can have it for yourself and know Christ died for me. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, as we sing unto you this morning, lift up our praise once again. May we discern the body of our Lord. May we remember that His blood was shed for us.
may we know and be reminded of the forgiveness of sins. Though we do this weekly, may we truly do this for the Lord. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.